Okay, let me uh, welcome you back. Happy New Year! Lovely to see you. My name's Stephen, and I'm one of the leaders here as well. Let me extend my welcome to you. Again, yeah, if you've been kicking around for a while, it's always nice to see each other. But if you're new, uh, maybe you've got a New Year's resolution going on that says, maybe I'll try out church, or maybe you're coming back to church. Uh, big welcome to you as well. Uh, it's the start of a new year. It's the start of a new preaching series for us. The world turned upside down. I am like Nay. I do sing Hamilton every time I say it. Uh, but it's not about Hamilton. It is about the book of of Acts. And uh, I am crazy excited. I'm trying not to let show too much about this series because I'm just so uh, thrilled that we are going through it. I spent the last month or so uh, with a team from across our four locations as a church, just studying it, men and women getting into the Word, pre- making preparations uh, to present this series to you this term. And I've just loved opening up the, the pages of this really amazing story. And uh, I'm jealous of you if you've never read Acts before, uh, because you get to be wowed by the events as they unfold. Now, I've got the privilege of having dug into it many times and digging in and finding new truths and new depths, uh, but I'd almost love to have gone back now and not have the hindsight of knowing what's coming. I say, what was it like to be really living uh, in this story? As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about some of my favorite novels that I've read, where uh, I've kind of seen the plot twist unfold in front of me and be wowed by it and wanted to keep reading uh, late at night because it's, so it's so gripping. And, uh, but when, once I put them down, I thought, do I really want to read it again? I know what happens. The exciting bits aren't going to be as exciting. Or maybe that first time I heard Ross say em, uh, Rachel's name instead of Emily in Friends, in case you know that reference. Or uh, some of my favorite sketches and uh, comedy, my favorite comedians. I love listening. I go back to YouTube and watch them time and time again. But they're not quite the same as hearing it uh, the first time. Or maybe the time I found that Bruce Willis's character in Sixth Sense is actually dead. <laughs> what? Now, you can shout spoiler, but I think after two decades of being out there, if you've not watched it, that's on you. Okay, but the, the big one, the big one is finding out that Hans isn't Anna's true love in Frozen. <gasps> Disney, what have you done? Such villainous actions. But those wow moments, oh, that moment, there's nothing like seeing that for the first time. Well, let me encourage you, as we go through the back book of Acts, even if you know it, try and park almost what you know of what's coming so you can live as much as you can in the moment. I'll explain more about that maybe as we go in today's uh, message. It's Luke who is writing Acts, and he's presenting these events for us, and he's done it in a particular way. And it's the story of the early church, and it's an underdog underdog story, really a story of a phoenix rising from the ashes. Because by all earthly accounts, if you rocked up in Jerusalem in AD 30, it would look like the mission of Christianity, Jesus' mission, had failed. Yes, Jesus had had three years of successful ministry, some really good high points, preaching to large crowds, healing many physically and spiritually, three years of exciting and falling ministry. Sure, the haters were going to hate, the authorities didn't like his revolutionary words and actions, but he was loved by the masses. And uh, this kind of culminated in him journeying into Jerusalem on a donkey. And people throwing their coats and branches before him, paving the way for his way into the city, uh, shouting his name and singing his praises. But this was all seemingly wiped away. He was squashed, squashed by the authorities that he had angered with his message of God's love, salvation, and coming kingdom. 
He was betrayed by one of his own, abandoned by his closest followers, and put to death by his conspirators. Jesus had failed. That's what it looked like. But we know that can't be the end of the story. Because here we are over 2,000 years later. And his followers now number into the billions. His name is known by most of the earth. And the influence of his teaching and his followers' acts have shaped the way we live and think and act. And more than most of us really even begin to comprehend. So what happened? Well, in this series, we are going to explore how the church came into being. And the things they began to do and how they even got accused of turning the world upside down. It's a quote we see later on in Acts chapter 17. It's not just the history of a group of religious believers in another part of the world, another time in history. No, this is also our history. This is the history of the church. And it's not just history either. It's also to inform us about our destiny in God. As believers, sometimes we can look at the world around us, maybe even look at our own church, and sometimes be disappointed or discouraged. We can look at the church in our city, in our nation, even at other places in the world, and feel overwhelmed by the task before us. We can be less than enthusiastic about the way that Christianity is received, the momentum of the gospel. We can just feel ordinary and small and unimpressive. Well, my friends, you are in for a treat. Because this is a book about people in a situation just like that. Where God lovingly takes the lives of people and does extraordinary things through them. Today's verses, I'm going to read just in a moment, a recap of what the disciples were doing between Easter Sunday and when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Pentecost. We're going to miss out a few key verses that Neville is going to get to next week. But let's listen up to Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Let me pray for us before we uh, look at these verses together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your holy scriptures. Uh, thank you you've written them uh, to, yes, Theophilus, but to us too, uh, that we might learn more about your glorious character, uh, that we might know more of your love, and that we might love you in return. We do just ask you might speak to each one of us uh, as we go through these verses this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So let me just give you a little bit of background about the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament. As I've said already, it's written by Luke, who is probably a doctor. And he's the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so in the Bible, we see there's four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Luke wrote one of them. And so he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And together, two volumes together, they make up over a quarter of the New Testament. That's what Luke wrote. And uh, really, they're two volumes of the same book. In reality, both are written to Theophilus and uh, probably would have been circulated uh, together. In our modern Bible, not right back from the second century, they were split up and put the four Gospels together, and then Acts came after. But probably originally they were circulated uh, together. And Luke has written them to a person. It would have been a kind of common way to write books back then, to write written it for a purpose and written it to someone. So here it's to Theophilus. We don't know much about him, uh, but we know enough to know that he's got a Roman name. So it's probably Roman. Uh, it sounds like he was a believer. He'd definitely been taught about the things of Christianity. And he's pretty quite an important person. Um, Luke refers to him as most excellent uh, Theophilus in Luke. I'd quite like to be addressed like that. And... Uh, so Luke is writing to him, but he's writing to us as well. And at the beginning of these two volumes, if you go back to Luke chapter 1, Luke kind of gives a more expansive kind of reason for his purpose for writing. It's worth us looking at. Because he is, uh, Luke has been following the amazing events of the last two decades. By the time he writes, it's been a few decades uh, since the birth of Jesus and his work. And, but he's been looking into it carefully. That's what he tells Theophilus. And that he wants Theophilus to be certain about the things of Christianity that Theophilus has heard and been taught. So he tells them that he's compiled an orderly account. He's taken time to craft it into these volumes to be helpful to Theophilus's faith and learning. And to help us with our faith and learning. He's constructed it in a certain way. He's also taken care to complete these narratives with uh, the testimonies of those who are actually there. Now Luke, as we'll discover in uh, chapters to come, was around for many of the events of Acts. But he wasn't around for none of the Acts of Jesus' life. But what he's, gone that, gone, what he's done and gone, he's gone around the eyewitnesses who were there. Recorded what they've said and taken great pains to write down the names of people and the places that they were. So that Theophilus... Go and go investigate. And so other readers can go and check out the things that he is saying. He's done this because it's important for Theophilus and it's important for us to know that these things that happened that he records are real. He does good academic work to get a historical record. And that, that's important for us as well. That the Jesus that we follow is not a myth or a legend. The things we learn and believe are not vague philosophies, but based upon God's actual, factual, historical intervention in the lives of people down through the centuries. So this is Luke's general purpose. He wants Theophilus to be sure of what he's believing and what he can put his trust in. But when we get to Acts, he opens up again by saying, Oh, Theophilus, I've got a purpose here as well. And it's good for us to slow down. Just read this first verse and understand his purpose for the book of Acts. It's going to shape how we in, kind of interact with it over these coming weeks. So, and it also forms my first point, which is whose Acts is Acts about? In Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, first book being the Gospel of Luke, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The key phrase there being all that Jesus began to do. 
The first book, the Gospel of Luke, is the account of Jesus' birth and what he did during his life until his ascension, when he went back to heaven, when he was no longer here on earth. If Jesus is no longer here on earth, surely Luke should have written, in my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus did. Full stop. But he doesn't. Why doesn't he say it? Why does he say began? Well, this brings us to the most fundamental question of whose acts are we looking at in this series. If the book is called Acts, who is doing the acting? If our Emmanuel series is called The World Turned Upside Down, who is doing the turning? You could be forgiven from my, my, the introduction I've given today that it's about the acts of the early church, of Jesus' followers. But here in this verse, we see clearly that volume one was about what Jesus had begun to do and teach. And therefore, volume two is all about what he continues to do and teach. Jesus was not done. We missed out a few verses, verses six to 11, that we're going to come back to next week. They ascribe Jesus' ascension, him rising up into glory to his father in heaven, where he is now glorified as the king of kings and lord of lords, where he has taken his rightful place. Having beaten sin and death and won for us great salvation and a hope of being with him forever. Now, I'm not going to say much more about that. I'm going to leave that to Neville. I'm not going to steal his material for next week. But it's important to note that Jesus, by ascending to heaven, was not marking the end of his ministry here on earth. Neither his death, neither his resurrection or his ascension marked the end of what he came to do. He is still acting. On the cross... Maybe you remember this. He says what? He says, it is finished. He wasn't talking about his involvement on earth. He was talking about finishing, breaking the curse of sin and death that came into the world because of mankind's utter failure. He was not declaring the ending of his ministry. He was not finished. No, not at all. There is much more that he had designed to do and has continued to do. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his gospel, He says that if everything was written down about everything that Jesus had done, there'd be too many books to fill the earth. If that was true at that point, how much more now, 2,000 years later, of all that Jesus has continued to do upon the earth? Luke is making the point that in his gospel, it was about what Jesus did while he was on the earth. This next volume is about what Jesus is doing from his seated position in victory and power at the Father's right hand. In your Bibles, if you get them out, not many of us bring our kind of paper Bibles to church, but if you do, if you turn to it, you'll see that at the beginning of Acts, it's pretty titled The Acts of the Apostles. And it's been called that since the second century, and the, the apostles, Jesus' disciples. And uh, in one sense, it is about the acts of people. And as we go through, we'll look at all kinds of different characters that are involved. And it is true to say that, but this book... And every book in the Bible is about Jesus, who he is and how he acts. There's more to say about what he's done from his seated heavenly throne. How does he do this? How does he act? Well, he does it through the power of his Holy Spirit. If we turn to verse 4, we see that Jesus tells them this. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. How does God act? How does Jesus act? He acts, yes, through his people, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them that they are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now this, if you're reading Acts for the first time, is a wow moment. 
This is when if you read it slowly and enter into the, how the disciples must have felt and thought, you begin to get the magnitude of what is going on here. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see, as we get to the day of Pentecost, what it meant for the Holy Spirit to descend upon the disciples. The outpouring on that particular day and then the subsequent miracles and wonderful things that God does in them as he empowers them. And I know about all that stuff. So I'm like, oh yeah, I know what that is. They don't know. When Jesus says, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, they're like, okay, what's that? What's that? All they've got is the promise and their imaginations to go on. Now their imagination is probably going to go to, oh Jesus, we've seen your life. When you got baptized by the Holy Spirit, uh, when you were anointed by the Holy Spirit at your baptism in the River of Jordan, from that point on, you did amazing things. Your anointing led you to heal many you calmed a storm with your words. You rose from the dead. If we've got the Holy Spirit, it's the same thing going to happen to us. For them, they'd read the Old Testament. They've got the same Old Testament we've got. They've been to the synagogue. They've been to the temple. They'd heard the stories of what happened to people when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They're thinking, is that going to happen to us? Are we going to be like Elijah? Are we going to call down fire from heaven? It's going to kind of burn up a water-soaked altar. Are we going to be like Samson, who's going to go around and pick up the, the jawbone of a donkey and kill thousands of people? Are we going to push down pillars and break down temples? What does this mean? I don't know about you. Have you ever been, I'm sure you have, in fact, been in a setting, maybe a work type, work type, uh, workplace type exercise, or maybe a small group icebreaker, or maybe a child has just asked you, if you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? Maybe the disciples, when they're out of earshot of Jesus, are saying to one another, I wonder which power we're going to get. Are you going to calm the storms? Am I going to multiply bread? I really am quite hungry right now. This could really work out for us. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Whatever they're thinking, it would have been mind-blowing. It would have been maybe even daunting. The whole thing was surreal. But the thing for us to keep coming back to is this. Yes, this is a book about what these people are going to go on to do. What the church got up to, but it's about what God does when he interacts with people. And as we all see, he doesn't do things the same way every time. He is a person. He's not an impersonal force or a genie or just mere kind of spirit out there in the air. No, the Holy Spirit is a person that does give power. But above all, he's one of the persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By him and through him, Jesus is working throughout the book of Acts. This isn't a nice detail of what we're looking at. It is a truth for us to grab hold of because it's true for you and it's true for me. Jesus continues to reign in heaven, continues to work by the power of the Holy Spirit today on earth. So let me go back to the two questions I asked earlier. If the book is called Acts, who is doing the acting? Jesus is. By the power of the Holy Spirit through his people. If our manual series is called The World Turned Upside Down, who is doing the turning? Jesus is. By the power of his Holy Spirit through his people. It's all about him. We are only looking at Acts chapters 1 to 4 between now and Easter. That's all we've got time for. But in the coming years, we will come back to the book of Acts. And we'll go through the whole thing eventually. And eventually we'll get to the chapter 28. And when we get to it, whoever's preaching will say, no, chapter 28 in Acts has a really quite an abrupt ending. And the reason behind that is because the Acts of God on earth has not finished. Does not finish at the end of chapter 28. God is continuing to act. He wasn't done at the end of Luke's gospel, and he's not done at the end of Acts either. 
He's continuing to act, continuing, continuing to turn the world upside down by his Holy Spirit, through his people like you and me, through his church to draw people to himself and establish his kingdom. As we read the book of Acts, we're going to see that this is a very ordinary bunch of people. And this particular moment, they're not really even an impressive size either. It's quite nice to see that in these two volumes side by side, read them in some side by side, because we'll see that characters in the first volume pop up again in the second volume. And we see their characters develop. And we see what happens when unimpressive people meet an impressive God. The most obvious example is Peter. Peter, who's known for kind of uh, getting it wrong. He's the one who denied Jesus three times, who cowardly ran off and had to be restored by Jesus with a breakfast at the beach and recommissioned lovingly. He's one who's known for putting his foot in his mouth. But in volume two, coming from Luke to Acts, in Acts, he's not so much one who puts his foot in his mouth. He's one who takes his foot out of his mouth and uses that same mouth to proclaim boldly who Jesus is courageously addressing hundreds, thousands of people about who God is. It's also worth noting that there's a change between how Jesus' key followers are described in Luke and how they're described in Acts as the Holy Spirit comes upon them. In Luke, they're described as disciples. It just means follower. They go from being followers. Here, right at the front of this uh, uh, book, it says that Acts are who? Not the disciples, the apostles. These disciples don't just come, aren't just followers, they continue to be followers in one sense, but they become those who are apostles. Apostles meaning sent ones. And at that time, apostles would also mean kind of ambassadors, ambassadors for important people, people with authority. The Holy Spirit hasn't even come upon them yet, but Jesus is already commissioning them to go and do amazing works for him. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Let's take courage. That the same Holy Spirit that baptized them baptizes us. That he would turn their lives upside down can turn our lives upside down too. Make us courageous and send us out to be his ambassadors. Let's take courage. Let's also take comfort. These Holy Spirit-filled believers were also still just people like us. They didn't suddenly become perfect or superhuman. They still got things wrong. Wrong in their relationships, wrong in their decisions, and even wrong in their theology. And Luke, thankfully, writes it all down for us in this book. It's good. We continue to see that God works with people who get things wrong. Thank you, Lord. He works with people like you and me. Being filled with the Spirit is not suddenly everything's perfect. No, we continue to walk with him. God, when Jesus, when he was on earth, he spent time with humble people. That's what he did. People in humble circumstances, not the impressive. He continues to work that way through Acts, continues to work that way now as well. So take comfort, take courage, and let's ask God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And go on being filled with Spirit. We can ask for more of it this morning. We can ask for it this week. We can ask for it across this month of prayer. We don't need to wait until we get to the preach in a few weeks' time on the day of Pentecost. We can have it now. Do you want more of that? I think in moments I really do. Other moments I'm distracted by everything else in life. Let me tell you, if you are a Christian here, being filled with the Holy Spirit is such a great privilege. Don't miss it. I encourage you, even today before you leave, just whisper a prayer to God. Lord, I don't know what it is that you baptize in the Spirit, but I want to be. How does this happen? 
If you've been baptized in the Spirit, the Bible says, keep on being filled. We don't need to be satisfied with God. There is gallons and gallons of Spirit-filled powers that come into our lives. We get to know the Holy Spirit more as the person who we can walk and hear from. So I've given you quite a bit about the book of Acts and some opening comments. But let's dive into these particular verses. Acts chapter 1 covers these 50 days uh, between Jesus' resurrection and the coming of the Spirit. 40 days between Jesus being resurrected and him going back to heaven. And then 10 more days between that point and the disciples encountering the Holy Spirit. And Luke already talks about these two time spans in the last few chapters of Volume 1, the Gospel of Luke. He's already talked about these things. So is he just repeating himself again? He doesn't just simply pick up where he left off. No, he goes back and does a recap. A bit like maybe our favorite TV shows, you know, previously on The West Wing. Or last week on The Bake Off. Uh, it's a little window into my TV viewing habits. Well, Luke is doing a bit of that. He's doing a bit of a recap. But we must resist the urge to press the skip recap button. Mustn't just skip to chapter 2. Because actually in these verses here, Luke adds to some of the things he said in his gospel. He's given some additional kind of details about the events and the conversations that were taking place in these 50 days. And uh, in them are some wonderful principles for us to grab hold of. And so in the time we've got left, I'm going to look at two of those. Well, the first one is the proof of Jesus' resurrection. And the second one is the disciples' devotion to prayer. So let's look at that first one. The proof of Jesus' resurrection. Luke spends a good amount of time and places great emphasis on the help that Jesus gives to his disciples to really know that he is risen and alive in bodily form. Jesus spends time with his disciples. Not just one or two, but many people in many places and at many times across the first 40 days. Walking along the road with some, cooking breakfast with others, meeting them in the upper room, meeting them in pairs and meeting them in larger groups. Luke wants us to understand, he wants Theophilus to understand that Jesus' resurrection is real. It's not the figment of a depressed disciple's imagination. It's not the deluded wishes of a disgruntled religious group. Jesus came back from the dead. That's what he's saying to Theophilus. This actually happened. And here are the names of the people who met him. Here are the places in which they met him. Jesus let people touch him. Jesus ate food with them to prove that he was not a ghost, but was actually risen. But why is the reality of Jesus' resurrection so important to Luke? Why is it important to the Theophilus? Why is it important to the apostles? Why should it be important to us? Well, for the apostles, let's start with them. They didn't yet have the promised Holy Spirit. So their only confidence was in what they could see and experience. And they needed confidence. Because Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem. He said, your promise will come in a, in a few days. Few days. What does that mean? Give us a date, Lord. So we're going to wait. So you've got to have confidence. No, no. Jesus is risen. We know he's true about the things he says. We can trust him. Jesus had also given them the gargantuan task of telling the whole world about what had happened. The things that they had seen. Just, just the whole world. Just you, 120. Can you get on with that, please? They needed to be convinced that this Jesus really was real and he really was risen. If they were going to commit themselves to this, they needed to be convinced. For them and for us as well, the resurrection is the proof of everything else. If they were going to testify to the things that Jesus had said and promised, 
They need to know that this very fundamental thing was true. Jesus said he would rise from the dead. Did he? They could see it in front of them. Yes, he did. Because if Jesus' body was or still is in an ancient tomb in Jerusalem, or if it was stolen by the Romans or the disciples and put somewhere else, if Jesus is still dead, then so is our religion. So is our faith. So is our church. And so is our hope. It's dead. Paul speaks about this in uh, the first letter to the Corinthians in pretty stark terms. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus' resurrection is not real, then this whole thing is a farce. And yes, we are to be pitied. Jesus' resurrection, however, is the proof of everything else. It's why they make a big deal about it on our Alpha course. If you've never done that, you should do it. For me, looking into Jesus' resurrection was a big part of me beginning to take Jesus and Christianity seriously. Me, like many others, they went to kind of look into the claims of Christ, maybe even from the point of view of trying to rubbish them, and discovered instead that there was proof that he really did rise from the dead. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he says he is says who he claimed to be and claimed and everything he said we therefore need to take seriously it means that the same scriptures he trusted we also can and must trust it means that even the hard stuff to comprehend or obey we have to because he is who he said he was he is the lord of lords he is the lord almighty he's our savior but he's also the lover of our souls he does know what is best for me and following me is the greatest thing that i can do with my life once we know the resurrection to be true we can become confident that our sins are forgiven, that we have salvation and that our future glorification is secure. Do you know this? If you know this, believer, I want to encourage you, let's come to this month of prayer and be those that celebrate. If you don't know this, let me encourage you to be someone who investigates. This is too important a thing to miss. For Jesus' followers, they had these amazing physical proofs of seeing Jesus in person, seeing his scars and eating with him. What about us? What about me and you? We don't have those things. We don't get to see him in his earthly body. We don't see the scars. We don't get to eat with him. What do we do? Well, firstly, we too can and should investigate the claims of Christ. Look at the reality of the historical accounts. Do some digging. It's worth doing. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is what provides the insurance that each of us need to follow Jesus and to enter into all that he's done for us. Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit's help with this in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, he says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is your guarantee of our inheritance. We don't have these outward proofs, no. Instead, we have the inner witness to know that what we have heard about Christ is true. Paul talks about this kind of language, about this legal seal that's been stamped onto our hearts and our minds, securing the fact that we can become, have become, the children of God with all the authority of heaven. He also talks about the Holy Spirit being this guarantee that the gospel that we have heard about Jesus, his death and his resurrection is real and true and can be trusted. He goes on though, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, By grace you have been saved or can be saved, even this morning, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. 
We receive our salvation through faith. But Paul is saying here that even faith is a gift of God, a gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter underlines this in his letters too. He says that everything you need for life and godliness, where does it come from? It comes from God. So if you are struggling with doubts about the resurrection or anything about faith, or if you want to know more about Christianity and get into it, the thing to do is to pray and say, God, give me this gift. Give me this seal. Give me this guarantee. Would you baptize me with the Holy Spirit? Would you fill me or fill me afresh with your mighty power that I might believe in you and believe in your resurrection? My last point in the time we've got left is looking at this last principle. What did the disciples do between Jesus' ascension and the coming of Pentecost? Now, they did a few things, but we're going to focus on one. They did a couple of things that we won't look at particularly, but worth mentioning. One thing is they, do, they carried on being devoted to Scripture. Worth mentioning that at the beginning of the year. Are you devoted to Scripture? Have you signed up for a new Bible plan? Do it. It'll do you good. Feast upon the Word of God. It'll help you understand more of Him. And it's a wonderful gateway for the Holy Spirit to work in your life. They were devoted to the Scripture. The other thing they did is they established a new leader to make up for Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus and then killed himself. And so they went to establish Matthias as part of their group. Establishing leaders is an important thing to do. and We'll talk about that maybe another time. But the principle I want to look at for us to grab today is that they were devoted to prayer, partly because we're in our month of prayer. It seems very fitting to do just that. What happens is that Jesus tells his disciples, when he, before he goes up to heaven, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit for a few days. They don't know how long for. And what do they do with that waiting time? They praise and they pray. It says this, They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So that's from the, 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 the account in Luke. And then Luke says, that's what he says about them. They returned and praised God in the temple, blessing God. And then in today's verse, in, chapter, in, in Acts chapter 1, we read that the 11 current apostles, again, Luke names them, so then Theophilus knows who they are. He also says that the women who followed Jesus and provided for his ministry, who are named elsewhere in Luke's gospel, they're there as well. And Jesus' own family, those who had before rejected him, uh, have also now turned his very own family and now worshipping and praising him. They come in Acts 1, and this is the way Luke records it there. It says this, All these people, with one accord, that means united together, were devoting themselves to prayer. Two descriptions of what they were doing. One of them thanking and worshipping God in the temple. The other devoted themselves to prayer in the upper room. I loved reading this freshly recently, this last month. But partly because it's undone some of my thinking around this particular kind of part of church history. I think before, when I thought about this, I thought, oh, this is the time when the disciples were really up against it. Jesus had died. The Jerusalem was up against it. The authorities had killed him off. Jesus had ascended to heaven. They were left by themselves. They were cowering in the upper room. But when I read these two descriptions of what they did in those 10 days, that's not what it looks like to me. They were happy to be seen in public, to go and bless God in a temple. They were continually and devoting themselves to praising and praying. doesn't sound like a beaten up bunch of church folk to me. They were confident in who Jesus was and the promise was going to be fulfilled to them. Nicely as though, the promise that they'd be given wasn't a reason to be passive. Like, oh, let's just wait. Let's just kick back, watch some Netflix, and uh, catch up on Bake Off, and uh, have some food or whatever. No, they didn't. They weren't passive. 
Are we going to be active in these 10 days? We can pray. Receiving the promise was not all the promise, and therefore it's done. It's like, no, we want to see the promise. It's the thing that actually motivates them to pray. Same is true for us. We can be confident of God's promises to us. And there are reasons to celebrate, reasons to praise and thank him and seek him and to ask for his kingdom to come, to seek his blessing, to seek the salvation of others, to see changes in the geopolitical situations that we see in our news feeds, to see our society turned upside down. We have every reason to hope and praise and pray like they did. It says in 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. This isn't meant to be a religious, ritualistic command. Sometimes it can feel a bit heavy. Oh, you're meant to pray without ceasing. Are you praying without ceasing? What are you doing with your time? No. It's meant to be the outflow of knowing Christ and his resurrection. To pray without ceasing, to be devoted to it, we have to be convinced like this merry band of Jesus' followers that he is alive and that he's true to what he has said and promised. Prayer can be a labor. Let me tell you that. I tell you what, we had such a fantastic time at the Oasis site on Wednesday night. I looked around the room, I could see people really enjoying God. I want to tell you, I was in my seat, tired, just trying to pray. Sometimes it's like that. Thinking, God, I'm just not feeling it tonight, but I'm going to pray. I want to continue and devotedly pray to you. Sometimes it's labor. To me, it's a, it's a, it's a labor just getting up to North Hove. It's a long way. You need a passport to get out there. We're going to Hove this week. Parking's a nightmare. It's halfway through the week. Maybe you could be a bit tired. Have you got a babysitter? All that kind of stuff. I want to say to you, resolve in your heart now, I'm going to be there. My call is to pray continually and to do it with other people, with one accord, united together. Or maybe right now, you're in a time of waiting. Maybe you've been waiting a long time, even for the power of the Holy Spirit to evidence himself in your life. I know I pastor enough of you to know that's the case for some of you. I want to know more of what the Holy Spirit is in my life. And we can be discouraged. Or maybe we're discouraged by other waitings in our life. For finance, or for jobs, or education, or houses, or for a particular relationship, or maybe a baby. These things are hard, and they can be reasons to step back from our faith. Step back from prayer. But here we see with the disciples, what they do in the waiting? They step in. They decide to praise the God who they know is good, who has made good promises. They choose to lift their hands and pray. Let me encourage you to let the truth of the resurrection of Jesus get into you. Let it be the fuel in your tank to go again and join the believers in prayer. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. What did they do with their waiting? They prayed and praised. Let that be our default too. Let me finish by saying this. Let's be confident about the same Jesus and the same Holy Spirit who acts in and through these disciples. That he is still working today. Let it give us courage and confidence. Let's either celebrate or investigate the resurrection of Jesus. It's the only reason we have to be confident in our salvation and our coming glorification. And lastly, let's respond as these disciples did by devoting ourselves in prayer and praise to the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for what we, describe, what we see uh, in these wonderful verses. And uh, we thank you that there's stuff in it for us to grab a hold of. And I pray most of all uh, that we uh, might just invite you, even as we began our service saying we welcome you with praise. We do welcome you with praise again into our church, into our month of prayer, into our lives individually. Say, God, would you fill us afresh?
would be we more aware of your Spirit's work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in our relationships, in our church, in our city, in the mission that you've called us to, Lord God. We just say to you, we're not that impressive. We're really not. Lord, we need your empowering. I want to pray for the person who's closest to you right now, who is just sitting in the glory of what your Holy Spirit is already doing, Lord God. Thank you. There is even more for them to know. Thank you for the person in the room who knows least of this, Lord God. Thank you. Your Spirit is here, available for them right now. We say, God, even this morning, even as we get up and just take communion and worship in a moment, Lord, pray that you just come and touch our lives. Thank you. We read that it's an experience, Lord. It's not just something that goes on in, in uh, the intellectual, Lord. This is true. Helps us really just be sealed in our, our relationship with our adoption into your family, Lord God. It's a guarantee that we are part of what you are doing upon the earth, Lord. So just come upon different ones around the room right now, we pray. In Jesus' name.